Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. As we worship the Lord, let's ask the Lord's help that he'd open our eyes. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray with confidence the very words of the psalmist. Open, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Lord, we join the psalmist in praying with great confidence. We will run the way of your commandments for you will set us free by your glorious law. Teach us now that Jesus Christ might be glorified in his church. Amen. If you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to open up in Proverbs chapter 3 this morning. I'll read from verses 13 down through verse 24. Proverbs 3 verses 13 down through verse 24. Every sermon that we receive together from this pulpit is always from the Word of God. I suppose a smaller number of sermons are kind of sermons from the Word of God that are about or that help to understand why there are sermons in the first place and how to approach life and reality. And this is one such sermon about our whole view of the world and God and the Bible and everything. And so we want God to help us see what true wisdom is. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. That's a preacher delivering that message from a pulpit and having the the inner fortitude to say, what you'll receive from the wisdom of God from his word is more desirable than anything else you could want. What a thing to say. He goes on to describe the blessings of receiving God's wisdom. Verse 16, long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life. We'll get that in our ABFs when we study Genesis 1, 2, and 3. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down their dew. My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and there'll be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. And when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. What a tender thing for God to say. If you understand his wisdom, you understand what he says about life, it may even help alleviate your sleeplessness and your anxiety. Our question this morning in this series of questions that we're going through is kind of about what are people. Our final questions in this series are all about the the rainbow flag and that whole deal. But... uh, get to that, we have to understand the meaning of sex. And to get to that, we have to talk about what men and 
women are and to get to say anything about men and women in a way that's true and meaningful and beautiful and holistic, we have to grasp what are people, what are people for, why do people matter, and why does what people do with their bodies matter? And so to do that, I want to answer the question, what are people in good This is good Bible church fashion. I'll give you a three-point outline. And just because I'm being merciful to you, all three points start with the same letter. (laughs) To understand how to get to what we're going to answer, these cultural questions about the rainbow flag, we have to understand what are people. And to understand what people are, we have to understand reality, relationships, and rules. We have to understand that reality... Reality is created by God. Everyone here is subject to reality because we are not the creators of reality. Reality is created by God. And second, relationships. Relationships as given by God. Relationships as given by God. There are some ways that you choose to have a relationship with this person or that person. You choose to cultivate a relationship with this sports team or that sports team. But at a fundamental level, from your created essence, relationships are given by God, not created and manufactured by you. And third, we need to talk about rules. Rules as the wisdom and love of God. So to speak those three things from the underside of what they're not, reality is not created by us and our feelings. Relationships, at least a core number of our most fundamental relationships which we are born into, are not chosen by us, but they're chosen by God, and we're placed in them by his sovereign hand. And then third, rules. God's rules are not, this is what Proverbs 3 is saying, God's rules are not like, here's the world, and then God randomly stamped some rules on the world. God, by his wisdom, created the world, and his rules for the world are his loving expression of wisdom for the joy and fruitfulness and flourishing of the world. They're neither random nor are they a negation of human joy and even of earthly prosperity. In our ABF last week and from this pulpit last week, we talked about Genesis 1 27. So our first point about reality will be a crisp review and it won't take very long. Genesis 1:27 says it's it's 22 words in the ESV translation of the Hebrew. Genesis 1:27 says, "So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them." The first thing to understand is reality, and the first place to understand it is from Genesis 1 and verse 27. The very first, most fundamental thing to say about man is that he is created. That's the first thing to understand about the reality of what are people. We are created. It says God created man. This is the baseline of our identity, meaning we're not God. We are creatures of the one true and living God, meaning that we are accountable to God and we receive who we are from him. We don't manufacture who we are from our own uh, devices or our own strengths. I was going to say, I don't want to poke you and challenge you this early in the sermon, but actually maybe I do. So 
I won't say that. I do want to poke you and challenge you this early in the sermon. If you're tracking with me, then unless you're going to disagree with me, which is fine, you need to say this. I, you need to say this. I am not the ultimate reference point of who I am. You actually need to embrace that. I am not the ultimate reference point for my life, my identity. My feelings, my desires are not the, def- the definition of who I am. My heart and what it wants. My heart and what it wants is not the compass to direct me in life because God created me. So I belong to God, and so I'm accountable to God. If you say that kind of thing, if you are a person who says, I'm not the ultimate reference point for my life and identity, you are a very strange bird in the year 2023. Because nobody in the post-Christian, post-modern, post-office, whatever you want to call it, nobody in the post-Christian 2023 West says that anymore. But we say that as the baseline of everything else we're going to say. So the first thing about reality of who man is, is he's created. The second thing about reality is that man is the image of God. It's the next four words in the Hebrew text. God created man in his own image. That we're created in the image of God means that we are made to be like God in very important ways, and that we represent God in the world. What are people? Get this. This is an awesome truth. What are people? People are the beings designed by God to make who God is visible in the world. That's awesome. People are the beings designed by God to make God's character visible in the world. I I am overjoyed to teach these things because sometimes Christianity kind of gets shoved in the corner and we're like humanism and everything else about humanism is good for people and the world. I'm like, no, there's nothing better for people and the world than a robust understanding of man and woman as created in the image of God. If we are image bearers, then we have a dignity and a purpose that's beyond anything the world could even hold a candle to. So we have a purpose built into our very nature as the image of God. It's to love and serve God. And then the third thing to say about reality, man's created. Man is the image of God. And the third thing to say about reality is the very next words of the Hebrew text. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the third thing to say about reality is that our sex, our maleness or our femaleness is given by God. And the Hebrew text is very careful to staple that both to creation and also to the image of God, that he created us male and female and that male and female somehow show what it's like that human beings are created in the image of God meaning at least that we bear his image together in this beautiful distinctiveness where we're not the same, but the same, where we're different. It runs to the heart of who we are, that we are who God says we are. Here in Genesis, this point cannot be missed. Sex, in particular the sexual binary, that there are only two sexes, male and female, 
is fundamental to the biblical doctrine of what people are and who God is, what it means to be an image bearer. And therefore, any attempt to change male into female or any attempt to change female into male or any attempt to blur the line between male and female, just according to even Genesis 1.27, is both a fundamental attack on the authority of God and a fundamental attack on one's own humanity. It's not an exaggeration to say that transgenderism is an attack both on humanity and on the authority of God. And I would say clearly, but I would say in sympathy and compassion and love, if you are attacking God, it's not going to end up well for you. And if you are attacking your own humanity, it's not going to end up well for you. So repent, drop it, and come into the light, the light of God's love. As we talk about homosexuality or transgenderism, I'll, I'll say again what I've said before. This is not because uh, I don't love or even like those who would say that they are gay or transgender. Not only do I love them with Christian love, I even like them humanly. They're not super icky. My sins are equally icky and damnable. But we say these things because these are the times that we live in. So these truths about reality, uh, about, about reality, that God created us in his image and that sex is, is core to that. That's number one, reality. Second, about relationships, about relationships. What do we want to say about relationships? How about we start by saying this, uh, again, out of Genesis 127, you were made out of relationship and you were designed for relationship. You were made out of relationship and you were made for relationship. How does Genesis 127 prove that you were made out of relationships? Say it again. God says, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. That's at least a triad of relationally clustered words right there in this one simple verse that's translated in 22 English words. We're made out of relationship and we're designed for relationship. God says it's not good to be alone and he joins us together. Relationships are fundamental to human identity. Relationships are fundamental to human identity. So I ask the question, who am I? We could answer that question a certain way. Let's pretend that I committed a crime. You can send me emails about what crime you picture me committing, and I will, and I will send them to my spam folder. I'm not interested in that, but let's say I committed a crime. And I left hair follicles or skin cells or even blood at the crime scene. Somebody forensically could dial that up and look it up, and if I'm in the system, they could identify who I am by my genetic code. But if you were to ask me, who are you? What are the chances that my answer to that question would have anything to do with my genetic code? Zero. Zero. That's not how I would answer. I would answer out of relationships. If you were to ask me who I am, I'd probably say something like this. I am... In Christ, I am a human being created in the image of God. I am the son of Richard and Gail, who loved me very much. I am the covenant partner of Amy, who is the daughter of Betty Jo and Marvin Daniel, who loved her 
very much. Together we are the parents of one daughter and two sons and one son-in-law and one daughter-in-law and three grandkids. And I am a covenant member of Racine Bible Church. And I'm also a, a neighbor, Lord willing, a good neighbor to the people on my street. And I pay taxes in the state of Wisconsin. And I'm a citizen of the United States of America. I'd probably say something like that if I gave a full answer. And all of those are relationships. Some of those relationships I've chosen, but the most fundamental ones that I started with, I didn't choose them at all. I didn't choose them at all. Relationships are fundamental to our identity, and some of our most fundamental relationships are not chosen and manufactured by us, but are given by God. So just like in reality, we didn't choose our own existence or our own sex in relationships, we didn't choose the, the most fundamental starting point of our relationships. Which brings us to what a couple of theologians have called the theology of the belly button. This is one of my favorite things. The theology of the belly button. Uh, they say this, nothing is as ultimately revealing about human nature as your belly button. By noting that we are creatures, that we are the creation of a mother and a father, the Bible tells every person that you have received your life as a gift. You are begotten, not manufactured. And after begetting you, someone even changed your diapers. This may be your first hint of what unconditional grace must look like. The theology of the belly button. You were born into unchosen obligations. You were born into unchosen relationships. In a world where everyone creates their own identity, you were born into relationships. They're yours and you're bound by them, by God's good design. This is important because today everybody, every cultural narrative in pretty much every piece of entertainment that we look at emphasizes the main character choosing their own community, choosing their own relationships. And, and there are some ways that you do that, but there are fundamental ways that you don't do that. I love everyone in Racine. I do. But as a, a Christian man raising a household, I'm not accountable to feed and clothe everyone in Racine. I am accountable before God to feed and clothe my own family. Sometimes, even well-meaning Christians get kind of uh, emotionally manipulated into thinking like, well, it's, it's not right to, to, to take care of your own family. The Bible emphasizes that it's God's good will for you to take care of your own family. In 1 Peter 5, it says that um, there should be a fund. We call it the deacon's fund. I, I, we have this, and I just got a report on it, not Thursday, but the Thursday before, how much money's in there. We use that deacon's fund to care for widows or the unemployed or church members who need help. But right in 1 Timothy 5, it's, it literally says, don't use that money for them if they have family members who can help them first. That's how significantly God takes that subsidiarity about those fundamental relationships that you're first and foremost accountable to. And sometimes we get confused about that. Sometimes I trust even well-meaning Christians they grab that verse where Jesus says, if you don't love me more than father or mother, you're, mother, you're not worthy of me. As, as if to make that verse say something it isn't saying. What's that verse saying? That verse is saying a 
powerfully glorious truth about discipleship and commitment to Jesus Christ. But by that verse, Jesus is not pouring white out on the dozens, if not hundreds of other verses in the Bible that emphasize that you take care of your own household first. The commandment to honor father and mother, the commandment to honor marital vows, these are upheld throughout Scripture, and they're beautiful, and they're glorious. So to talk a little bit about relationships. Relationships, the reality about relationships is that you're placed into relationships that were given to you by God. To talk about creational reality, you're placed into your maleness or your femaleness as it's given by God. To understand what people are, we've got to understand reality, we've got to understand relationships, and then third, we need to understand rules, God's law, God's rules. And this is where we started in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 19. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. It's God's wisdom that created the world. And the one thing that the book of Proverbs is saying is that the law of God gives you wisdom in how to navigate the world. The law of God gives you wisdom in how to navigate the world. And what this is saying is the wisdom of God and the law of God, the wisdom of God and the rules of God is most fitting to human relationships and to human reality. That's why he says in verse 21, don't lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. They'll be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. They'll keep you secure and they'll keep you from stumbling. This is the point about God's rules. And I, you know, speaking personally for a moment, this is one one point that, uh, that I wish in the last 21 years of my ministry, I had emphasized more. But we live and we learn and we grow and, you know, hopefully become better at what we do. This point about rules and how fitting they are in God's world. The point here is that God's rules are given for the good of human relationships and the prosperity of reality, the joy of reality. So, Picture the sign outside of the pool that says, no diving today. And the teenagers or kids or 63-year-old woman, for that matter, who really wanted to jump off the high dive, oh, man, no diving today. That rule stinks. And the reason the sign is up is not because the people who made the pool like to dampen everyone's mood. The reason that sign is up is because today is the day when there is no water in the pool. (laughs) And if you dive, you will... This sign, this rule was not given because there's a mean leader of the pool who wants you to never have fun. This sign was put there for your joy, for your fruition, for your well-being. 
My son, do not lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. They will be life to your soul and adornment to your neck. And you'll walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. You see how, you see how beautiful and fitting this is. If you're still there in Proverbs 3, look at Proverbs 8, verse 32. Proverbs is filled with this. Look at Proverbs 8, verse 32. Wisdom is speaking, and it says, Now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. The rules of God are not given for your injury, or for the death of your happiness. The rules of God are given for your life and for your joy, for your joy, for your joy. In Proverbs 9, we have the seven-pillared house of wisdom, a, a, a wonderful biblical text. And then it says in Proverbs 9, 10, the core verse of Proverbs is Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And look at the very next verse, verse 11 of chapter 9. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. God's rules are not given to steal the life from your life. God's rules are given to bring the love, the light, and the joy into your life. Biblical moral law is neither arbitrary nor random. Biblical sexual morality, when we get to the rainbow flag or when we get to fornication, that it's wrong to live together before you're married or when we get to adultery, that it's wrong to have any kind of intimate physical relationship with someone who's not your spouse. These rules are given for the protection and the fruition of human love. Some thinkers call this Natural law, all the way back to uh, Anselm and church history. Some people call this creation design. We could just say that, couldn't we, that the, the rules that God has disclosed in the Bible are rules that match exactly to the way the world works. That's what we're saying. His rules aren't arbitrary. They are fit exactly to the way that the world works. Natural law or creational design is simply the idea that the world in which we live is not random and it's not morally indifferent. We are not a Play-Doh that can just get squished whichever way it wants. We are created reality in the image of God with a purpose, male and female, in relationships, and the rules are given for the well-being of that reality and for the full joy and enjoyment of those relationships. Natural law applied to morality is, you know, teachers like me often, uh, the easiest way to illustrate natural law is in the physical realm, like that diving board illustration, and then you move it to the moral realm. Because all people understand it in a simply, like, physical, uh, or, or, so to speak, morally neutral way. In other words, I can't climb up the tallest building in Racine and jump off and expect to live a prosperous life. The jury's out if I could climb up the tallest building in Union Grove and jump off and live a prosperous life, because 
there ain't no buildings that you can grow. There's like tractors and people chewing tobacco. I don't know what they do over there, but at least in Racine or Milwaukee, it's like you, you couldn't jump off the tallest building and expect to be happy. Why? Why? Because the human body was not created to fly without a whole lot of help. My bodily constitution constitutes limits on what I can and cannot do. And those limits are neither arbitrary nor random. And those limits are not going to lead to my further destruction. Those limits are going to lead to my further fruition. So it is sexually and morally. Without wishing to be graphic in any way, the male and female body are created and designed to fit together. The male body fitting together with the male body only causes infection and disease and damage. This is why in Romans 1, when the apostle speaks about homosexuality, he uses the language of relationships which are not fitting or which are contrary to nature. That's, That's where that comes from. The human body itself shows a design which shows us that the rules that God has placed on sexual morality are given for our good, and they're not just stamped on by somebody who doesn't understand and doesn't want us to have fun. They're given for our protection. Moral laws about sexual behavior are good, not bad. And to follow God's moral commandments about sexual behavior, it actually leads to greater life and joy and also greater sexual satisfaction and away from loneliness, and away from pain. In all our years of ministry here at RBC, we've never wavered on the teaching of the Word of God about men and women and about sexual morality, but it seems to us, doesn't it, and increasingly so in the last 8 to 12 years, that so many of a, usually of a younger generation, They grow up, they question those rules, and then they end up jettisoning those rules. Why is that? Why is that? That happens for a lot of reasons that I can't fathom. I don't know my own human heart, much less anybody else's. But one reason perhaps, or better than perhaps, one reason that's very credible is that this issue of of, uh, not, not understanding how the whole thing fits together. We could guess at a a young, maybe a new Christian or a young person who's just sort of coming into their own, and they, they, they ask, you know, why, why can't my gay friend marry whoever she or she wants? Why can't they have the joy of that relationship or the enjoyment of that relationship? We show them verses that show that that contradicts God's goodwill for them, and we'll always show them verses. That we, that we, we, this, is, this is the truth, and this is how we show it. But rather than just stapling a couple of verses on it, much better to show from Genesis all the way through Revelation, God's good design for reality, God's good design for relationships, and then how God's rules fit that. They fit that. God's moral commands make sense as the way to live in the world that God created. If you want to put this in a verse, I found one in uh, Psalm 119, verse 129. You don't even have to turn there, but I'll give you the reference again. Psalm 119, 129. I, I, uh, I memorized it initially with the these and the thou, so that might be how it comes out. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. 
Thy testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul observes them. I'm just saying one human being to another, why would you carefully obey what's not wonderful and good for you? Why would you do that? But if you could understand how wonderful and good for you are the rules of God, they're not random things from on high from someone who's removed. They are rules that are expressed by the very creator who took the fall of that creation on himself and understands what it's like to live on this groaning planet. He's the one that gave us those rules and they're fitting and they're wonderful. There's another spot in Psalm 119 where he where he says, I forget the number right now, where he says, he says, I will run in the way of your commandments, for thou by thy word have enlarged my heart. See, an understanding of God's rules and God's reality, it doesn't shrink your humanity, and it certainly doesn't steal your enjoyment. It enlarges who you can be as you understand his creation and his design for you. And so we come back and back and back again to these fundamental truths. My desires don't determine my identity or my reality. I'm given relationships fundamentally by God. And so you can see, I hope, why this message in particular is, is kind of a, a sermon about how to understand all the sermons about all the stuff. Let me bring a gospel word. Uh, to the church, and let me bring a gospel word to someone here who may not be a Christian or who, who may be gay or transgender. First, a gospel word to the church. Hell. Hell is full of people who were right about how wrong homosexuality is. Hell is full of people who were right about this or that moral issue. You ever met a Pharisee? Your opinion or even your convictional belief about these things is, is not the gospel. The, the, the fundamental reality is that all of these truths are truths that we hold on to, but the fundamental gospel reality is that Jesus is the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. By confessing a couple of truths, you don't come to the Father. You come to the Father by being found in the one who is the truth, and that is Jesus. That's the gospel truth for the church. I suppose the, I suppose the, the, the other gospel truth for the church is that if you have embraced the truth, which is Jesus, then you can't turn around and deny His truths about all of these other things. But don't mix the order there. The fruit of Christianity and the fruit of Christian morality is neither Christianity nor the gospel. The gospel is the gospel, and that's trusting Jesus and Jesus alone. And then a word to someone who may not be a Christian or who may say, I'm gay or I'm this or I'm that. I, I, there are a lot of good Christ-honoring ways to, to have that conversation. But one of the ways is to say, I, I hear you and I understand that what you're saying to me is that you are gay, that you are trans. I just want to tell you, I, I understand that you think of yourself that way. But God, he doesn't think of you that way. And God doesn't think of you that way, not because he wants to take from you and he doesn't want to help you, but God doesn't think of you that way 
because God thinks of you as his own image, and he created you to know him, and the way to know him is to know his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and who suffered in, in our place. And so for you to know who you are and be who you're supposed to be, the one, the one place you got to go is to Jesus. And if you will come to Jesus, I tell you this. I don't know how everything will shake out practically, but I tell you this. If you come to Jesus, you will understand love for the first time in your life. You'll understand love. A love that's better than anything we pipsqueak human beings call love or community or happiness because it's Jesus. Come to him. Come to him. Let's pray. Living God, we ask that by the preaching of your word, you would enlarge our hearts. We ask that by the preaching of your word, you would remove uh, the pharisaical judgmentalism or moralism from us. And we ask that by the preaching of your word, you would give us the very vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that opens our heart and that opens our eyes. Heavenly Father, bless your church by the preaching of your word that we might make and train more disciples who will understand who they are because they understand and know Jesus Christ. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.